Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash boy you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Sir George Etienne Cartier, his work for Canada and his services to Montreal. Written by John Boyd, this book looks at the father of the Canadian Federation. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. This podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thank you to everyone who reached out during the week to say hello. Thank you to Lene for sending thanks on Instagram. I also hope that I pronounced your name correctly. Thank you to iTunes listener Jericho for your lovely review on iTunes Australia. Thank you to CastBox listener Liam J for sharing the podcast with your friends. And for all the Anchor supporters and Patreons, I thank you for continuing to support the show financially. If you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in iTunes or your podcast app. Even one sentence really helps out. It would also be awesome if you're able to share the podcast with someone else who needs help with a good night's rest. If you would like, you can say hello to me at boyyoutosleep.com 
where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at BoyYouToSleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the ratings. Sir George Etienne Carter. His work for Canada and his services to Montreal. An address delivered before the Canadian Club of Montreal. Mr. Chairman and Gentlemen, the subject of the address which I have the privilege of delivering today is Sir George Etienne Cartier, his work for Canada and his services to Montreal. Let me at the outset, Mr. Chairman, express my deep appreciation of the honour the executive of the Canadian Club has done me in inviting me to address the members of this important and representative organisation. When, in 1892, through the efforts of Mr Charles R. McCulloch of Hamilton, the first Canadian Club was organised. A movement was inaugurated of the most utmost importance to the Dominion. Every important centre throughout the country now has its Canadian Club, and these organisations, or as they have very well been termed, these universities of the people, now numbering nearly 100, are doing a splendid work in fostering a spirit of patriotism and in creating that national sentiment which is so essential to Canada's welfare. The Canadian Club of Montreal, composed as it is of the most representative citizens of the commercial metropolis, has ever been foremost in this great work, and it is indeed a privilege to have the opportunity of addressing such a gathering. What more appropriate subject, Mr Chairman, could be found for an address before a Canadian club than the career of one of our great nation builders, of one who helped to lay the foundations of Canadian nationality and of the Dominion's greatness. It is not my intention, Mr Chairman, nor would time permit on this occasion to deal exhaustively with the life and achievements of Sir George Etienne Cartier. That is now engaging my attention in another form, and when the memorial history of the life and times of George Etienne Cartier shall appear, it will, I trust, be found to be at least an exhaustive review of a great career and of one of the most memorable periods of Canadian history. On this occasion, owing to the limited time at my disposal, I shall content with reviewing succinctly Cartier's public career and achievements, dwelling briefly on the lessons of his life, with special emphasis 
upon the great work that he did for Canada in general and the eminent services which he rendered to the city of Montreal in particular. I shall take it for granted, gentlemen, that you are all conservant with the main facts of Cartier's career, from his birth at Saint-Antoine on the Richelieu River on September 6, 1814, until his entrance to public life at the age of 34 in 1848. From that date until he became Prime Minister of United Canada in 1858, and from that until his death in 1873, when he held the portfolio of Minister of Militia and Defence in the Dominion Government. Cartier's public career covered a period of some 25 years, that is to say, from 1848 to 1873. What fruitful efforts, what Herculean labours, what great achievements, what struggles. Defeats and triumphs were crowded within the compass of that career. The period which it covered was one of the most remarkable, if not the most remarkable, in the whole range of Canadian history. It was a period which witnessed many great constitutional changes, many transformations of parties, many fierce political struggles. It saw the beginning and the end of the Union. It marked the triumph of the long struggle for responsible government. It witnessed the birth of the Confederation. It was a period fecund of great events and momentous developments. It was also a period rendered notable by the long succession of great statesmen, whose names must forever be illustrious in Canadian history. During all of that period, Cartier played an active part and at times occupied a preeminent position. At the beginning of his career, Cartier was a zealous reformer. In his youth, like so many other ardent spirits of the time, he came under the influence of Louis-Joseph Papineau when that great French-Canadian tribune, with his incomparable eloquence, was thundering against those administrative abuses which were directly responsible for the troubles of the period. Nor was Papineau alone in his opposition to what Cartier described as the action of a minority which sought to dominate the majority and exploit the government in its own interests. Papineau, it should be remembered, had the support of leading English-speaking Canadians, such as the distinguished Wilfred Nelson, afterwards Mayor of Montreal. In fact, 
it is a noteworthy historical feature that some of the leading figures in the struggle for responsible government in Lower Canada were English-speaking. Cartier's participation in the Rising of 1837 was due to the ardour and impetuosity of youth and the sincere convictions he held that the prevailing evils called for drastic measures. His experience convinced him of the folly of an appeal to arms. He realised that the remedy for existing evils must be sought, not through armed resistance to the constituted authorities, but through constitutional agitation and legislative action. He became a staunch supporter of LaFontaine's policy, and one of his earliest campaign speeches was made in advocacy of the principle of ministerial responsibility. During the crisis resulting from the resignation of the LaFontaine Baldwin government in 1844. In 1844, when Cartier first enacted Parliament, the struggle for responsible government, thanks to the efforts of those two great statesmen, Louis Hippolyte LaFontaine and Robert Baldwin, whose names will be forever held in the highest honour by all Canadians, had been fought and won. When justice had been secured and existing abuses remedied by the granting of responsible government, Cartier became, and ever afterwards, continued to be one of the warmest supporters and most zealous champions of British institutions. A strong advocate of the maintenance of British connection and a passionate lover of the British flag. Cartier was the destined successor of La Fontaine in the great work of reconstruction, pacification, and conciliation. And when La Fontaine retired in 1851 and was followed a few years later by the other eminent French-Canadian statesman, Auguste Norbert Morin. Cartier's path to the leadership of his native province was clear. For years he was the undisputed leader. His voice, as has been well said, was the voice of Quebec. The struggle for responsible government having been won, an era of marked industrial expansion and development, followed under the Union. It was an era of railway building, of canal construction, of the establishment of great public works. Cartier, owing to his practical qualities, his great business abilities, his mastery of details, and his administrative capacities, was eminently qualified to obtain a leading position during such a period. He achieved distinction as a reformer, as an able administrator, as a legislator, and as a constructive statesman. 
His name is attached to some of the most important acts of a period prolific of important legislation. It is sufficient to mention in this connection such measures as the construction of the Montreal and Portland Railway, the decentralization of the judiciary, the codification of the civil laws and civil procedure, the modification of the criminal law, the Municipal Act of Lower Canada, the Act Relating to Registration Offices, the abolition of the seigneurial tenor, the choice of Ottawa as the capital of Canada, the construction of the Grand Trunk Railway and the Victoria Bridge, the organisation of the educational system of Lower Canada, the improvement and deepening of the St. Lawrence, the building of canals, the union of the provinces of British North America, the acquisition of Northwest Territories, the construction of the Intercolonial Railway, the establishment of the province of Manitoba, the admission of British Columbia into Confederation, the establishment of the militia system, and the initiation of the Canadian Pacific Railway. It would not be in accordance with the absolute truth, which is demanded of history, to even infer that to Cartier alone is due the credit for the passage of all these great measures. Many eminent men contributed by their efforts to their achievement, but to Cartier may fairly be adjudged, the merit without detracting from the merits of others, of having taken an active part in the achievement of all of these important measures, of having devoted his great energies and abilities to their accomplishment, and of having played a determining part in the achievement of some of them. Some of these measures were of material benefit to the progress of the country. The legal reforms for which Cartier is entitled to the sole credit constitute in themselves a monument to his wise statementship. Other measures in which he played a determining part, such as Confederation, were of an epoch-making character in connection with Canada's national development and well-being. As an eminent French-Canadian writer, the late Senator Tassi has well remarked more than one of these measures would have been sufficient to immortalise Cartier. He was, to use Senator Tassi's words, at one and the same time a legislator, a founder of constitutions, a peaceful conqueror. The greatest work in which Cartier participated and in which it is freely acknowledged he played a determining part was of course the establishment of confederation. The idea of a union of all the provinces of British North America did not originate with Cartier 
any more than it originated with McDonald's, Tupper, Tilly, Brown, or the other great fathers of Confederation. Proposals to that effect had been made long before, and the idea was that one had arisen in many minds as a desirable consummation and as a remedy for the chaotic conditions which then prevailed. But the idea was one that was heartily supported by Cartier from a very early period and to the Cartier-Macdonald government, of which he became the head in 1858, as Prime Minister of United Canada, must be given the credit of having taken the first practical steps to bring about the Confederation. One of the items of that government's program was the Union of the British North American Provinces, and soon after the close of the session of 1858, a delegation composed of three members of the government, Cartier himself, A.T. Jolt, and John Rose, went to England to press the matter upon the imperial government. A memorandum submitted to the imperial authorities and signed by Cartier, Jolt, and Rose, urged to imperial government to take steps to have a meeting of delegates from all the British North American provinces to consider the question of confederation and to report upon it. Though the steps taken in 1858 had no immediate result, the fact remains that the government of which Cartier was the head was the first to take up the question of the Union of the British North American Provinces, that, as the lamented Thomas Darcy McGee remarked in his great speech during the Confederation debate, the first real stage of success of Confederation, the thing that gave importance to the theory in men's minds, was the Memorandum of 1858, signed by Cartier, Jolt and Rose. The recommendation, that memorandum, said McGee, laid dormant until revived by the Constitutional Committee, which led to the Coalition, which led to the Quebec Conference, which led to the draft of the Constitution, now on our table, and which added McGee with assurance will lead, I am fain to believe, to the union of all these provinces, an assurance which was not long afterwards happily fulfilled. Cartier was the leader of the Quebec wing of the coalition ministry. He was a delegate to the Charlottetown Conference, as well as a member of the Quebec Conference. He took a leading part in the Confederation debates, ably defending the measure against the attacks made upon it. With MacDonald, Brown and Jolt, he was disputed after the scheme 
had been adopted by the legislature to go to England to confer with Her Majesty's government. He was also one of the delegates who sat in conference from the 4th to the 24th of December, 1866, at the Westminster Palace Hotel in London, and at which a series of 69 resolutions, based on those of the Quebec Conference, were finally passed. The sittings of that famous conference were renewed early in January of 1867. A series of draft bills were drawn up and revised by the Imperial Law Officers. A bill was submitted to the Imperial Parliament in February and on March 29th under the title of the British North America Act. It received the Royal Assent. A royal proclamation issued from Windsor Castle on May 22nd, 1867, appointed July 1st as the date upon which the Act should come into force, and the following 1st of July witnessed the birth of what the Governor-General, Lord Monk, well designated as a new nationality. The men who assembled at Quebec on October 10th, 1864, to devise means for bringing about the union of the British North American provinces, had momentous problems to solve, but they were all men of the most ardent patriotism, of the broadest views, and with a firm determination to carry to a successful issue the great work with which they had been entrusted. How they succeeded in their task, we all know. It has been well remarked by one of the biographers of Sir John A. MacDonald that there are three men besides MacDonald's who in the establishment of confederation and in securing the large results which followed from that epoch-making measure demand special mention. Those men were George Etienne Cartier, Charles Tupper, and Leonard Tilly. Justice demands that George Brown should be also named amongst the great fathers of Confederation, for without the cooperation of that eminent liberal statesman, it is questionable whether Confederation, under the circumstances, could have been made affected at the time. It was George Brown who made the proposals which rendered the Coalition Ministry possible, and by sinking all party considerations and personal differences in a grave crisis of his country's history, he performed a signal act of patriotism which entitles his name to a high place on Canada's roll of honour. It was in fact a striking lesson in patriotism and in devotion to country to find men like Macdonald and Cartier on the one hand and Brown on the other forgetting all past differences 
and even bitter personal animosities, and in sitting at the same time, council board, to devise means by which the public interests might be served at a most critical juncture. Nor, amongst the leading fathers of confederation, must Sir A.T. Jolt be forgotten, for that distinguished statesman was a most zealous advocate of confederation, holding that, unless a union was effected, the provinces would inevitably drift into the United States. During the parliamentary session of 1858, he strongly advocated the federal union of the all-British North American provinces, and as had been justly said, the resolutions which Jolt then moved in favour of such a union entitle him to a high place amongst the promoters of confederation. Of the 32 statesmen who assembled at Quebec in 1864 and framed the Quebec resolutions which formed the basis of confederation, but one survives today and the Cartier centenary movement has the privilege of having that great statesman whose name will forever be linked with the names of Macdonald and Cartier as its patron. Still hale and hardy, in this 92nd year, Sir Charles Tupper enjoys the veneration and esteem of all Canadians. It has been justly said by Sir John A. Macdonald's biographer that in the reconciliation of Nova Scotia, to the Confederation, in carrying out great expensive and hazardous railway policy, in the establishment of the national fiscal system, in making Canadian expansion compatible with complete allegiance to the Empire, the aid which Macdonald received from Sir Charles Tupper can scarcely be exaggerated. In him, Great natural ability and power as a platform speaker were united with a splendid optimism about his country, a courage that feared nothing, and a resoluteness of purpose which despised any obstacles with which he could be confronted. It is not minimizing the services of any of the other illustrious fathers of confederation to say that Cartier played a leading, in fact a determining part in the achievement of that measure. His great colleagues have generously testified to that preeminent services which he rendered at the time. Cartier was as bold as a lion. He was just the man I wanted but for him confederation should not have been carried, was the emphatic declaration made by Sir John A. Macdonald on the day when he unveiled the statue of his great colleague at Ottawa. Sir Charles Tupper's tribute is equally eloquent and emphatic. I have no hesitation, he says, in saying that without Cartier, 
there would have been no confederation, and therefore Canada owes him a debt that can never be repaid. Dr. Parkin, in his life of Sir John A. Macdonald, in the Makers of Canada series, also pays a just tribute to Cartier for his work in connection with Confederation when he says, Without Cartier's loyal help, it would scarcely have been possible when the effort for union came to allay the anxiety of the French Canadians lest they should be swallowed up and their individuality be lost in the large proposed confederacy. Cartier's position at the time, it must be remembered, was an extremely difficult one. In fact, it is the difficulties which he then encountered and the manner in which he triumphed over them that entitled him to all the more credit. Never did a French-Canadian statesman, as eminent French-Canadian writer has remarked, have to face a greater responsibility than that which Cartier assumed the day when he had the alternative of accepting or refusing confederation. Neither Papineau nor La Fontaine had to place in the balance such grave issues. Their role was reduced to demanding liberty for Canadians. Cartier had to choose between a problematical future and a recognised state of affairs with well-defined advantages. Would as many guarantees be found in the edifice which was to be constructed by accepting the confederation of the provinces, was it not leaving the certain for the uncertain? Such were the questions which agitated minds anxiously weighed. There was strong opposition to confederation in Quebec, as well as in other provinces. Cartier had to face the powerful attacks of redoubtable and able antagonists who maintained that confederation would be detrimental to the interests of the French Canadians. His contention was that with general interests entrusted to a central government and local interests to local legislatures, the rights of the French Canadians would be amply safeguarded. Cartier maintained his position in the face of the most determined opposition and even against bitter personal attacks. He had his vindication when in the elections of 1867 the people of Quebec returned him to Parliament with a triumphant following. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. If you're still awake and can't quite get to sleep yet, you're welcome to tune in to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Good night.